Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 109th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's older than the weatherlight. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether they're building your deck or stockpiling in your spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host tonight, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin'. And we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon, James. How are you doing? Pretty good, Travis. Big week in uh, Magic and Magic Finance. Oh, for sure. All sorts of interesting stuff going on. Uh, And we're here to share some valuable information with everybody. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgpress.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. What's on the agenda this week, Travis? James, this week we have a show in four parts. Segment one is our top movers. We'll talk about the cards that have seen the largest price increases over the last week. Segment two is our cards to watch. James and I will talk about some of the cards we have our eyes on. Segment three is our metagame week in review. We'll take a quick stop at Star City's Legacy Open from last weekend. And finally, segment four, our topic of the week is the MTG Dominaria spoiler leak. Uh, certainly the biggest thing anyone's talking about today. Uh, what is, what's in there? What does this mean? Uh, lo- a lot to t- touch on there. Let's, uh, let's get started over here on our top mover segment one. <coughs> Excuse me. Still have not gotten rid of this uh, cough. Uh, first card this week is Shahrazad from Arabian Nights. Um, non-foil, of course, from about 200 to 400. Although I'm assuming no copies at 400 have sold yet. Uh, just a well-known, very old card. No reprints, reserve list. Nothing too different here than what we're used to. Is it on the reserve list or just essentially on the reserve list because it's impossible to reprint? Uh, I Well, I guess I did not actually look it up, but I kind of assumed it was on the reserve list. Uh, Sharazan? Such a pain in the butt to spell, too. <laughs> it is on the reprint li- or the reserve list, yeah. Yeah, and even if it wasn't, there's no way they're reprinting a, a card that starts a game within the game. Right, that is. <laughs> that is, uh, if you've ever had someone cast one of these, you would understand why that's such a pain. <laughs> well, I mean, in control mirrors, it can lead to eyeballs bleeding. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's ne- like, if anyone ever casts, yeah, you, you can never cast this in a real game of Magic. Even in a casual game of Magic, it's obnoxious. Of course, the kind of players that are interested in Sherazad are not the same kind of players that play Control. <laughs> True. This is, this is definitely the, I like to do something funky and, and roll eyeballs at the table. Yeah. Uh, okay, next up is uh, Martyr of Sands from Cold Snap. Looking at foils 9 to like 18. This is a common use in the Martyr Proc decks that you see in Modern. Did somebody play Martyr Proc recently? Like, why are we talking about this all of a sudden? Uh, I can't remember if this was on camera or not, but it's definitely a deck that pops up here and there. And this card has been printed. It has not been reprinted in quite some time. Yeah, it is uh, an oldie but a goodie, I guess. Uh, fairly narrow, I would say. Um, Super well, narrow, a, a cool yeah. card. What's next for us? Uh, this next one is the opposite. Tireless Tracker is everywhere that you can spare green mana in modern. Um, usually is a one or two of sometimes more. One of the bigger cards that come out of Shadows over Innistrad, and I think most people assumed that after its lifespan in Standard, where it was also a powerful uh, mid-range card, 
that its life life cycle within within the magic community might have been over. But no, 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 no. Foils for Tylus Tracker. I've gone uh, through the roof lately. This latest jump is from low twenties to mid forties. If you believe the posted prices, that's a hundred percent gain. Um, and if you were holding any of those, I think this is a pretty good time to sell through. Um, shows up in modern, see it in EDH, just a very flexible mid range card that grinds a lot of value. Yeah, this is a really cool card and I'm kind of annoyed that I did not pick one up for myself. I don't think I ever got a foil, just a non foil. And I kept meaning to, and then it never, I don't know, I guess I missed my opportunity. And this is probably going to hold a pretty reasonable price. I would say, uh, up until, I mean, it's not gonna be $45, but it'll hold probably 30 bucks until we see a reprint because it deals in clues. Um, not the kind of thing you're just going to see randomly thrown into a standard legal set. So uh, I would think that Modern Masters 2019 style set um, is probably the first t- chance you're going to have to see that. Maybe like summer of next year, spring of next year. Yeah, and even be, that uh, even uh, that seems a little a little little soon. So I mean, you might not see this card again until 2020, 2021, and by that time we'll have jet cars. So right, fine jet cars sounds. That would be very nice. Uh, next up is uh, all three Urza's Land from um, from Antiquities are showing up. Uh, you know, these show up right regularly. I figured we just mentioned them this time. The old, the original Antiquities versions of all three Urza's Lands are constantly like someone will list a copy or two. Somebody will buy them. The price will look like it spikes. This week, it was three or four copies, three or four printings. Because remember, they all had alternate arts. Uh, we're bouncing around from like seven up to 15 or 20. So uh, these are always kind of uh, moving. I guess the takeaway here is that if you ever find them um, <laughs> in the like five to eight dollar range for like a near mint copy of an Antiquities Urges Land, it's probably a good pickup. As long as the Tron lands are playable in modern, it actually astonishes me that the original printing from Antiquities, which was extremely low volume, um, and of which there are very few near mint still lying around that aren't already absorbed into collections never to return, um, have not already popped to 25 or 30 or $40 for these versions. I mean, there are plenty of versions of these lands, but these are the originals. I mean, there are very few opportunities in modern to play cards from 93, 94. Yeah, I, I wonder if that has to do with like what cards are the ver- various versions of Urza lands available because the ninth edition ones are pretty cool looking and especially foil, but like, but yeah, black border ones is were really cool. Or the, the foils were all the, all, the, the ninth edition ones are only black border and foil like the eighth and ninth one. So you get them white bordered if they're not. So like, yeah, I, I, I agree. It is, it is odd that these hang out as cheap as they are. I wonder if the fact that there was four different art for them meant there was... I don't think that meant there was four times as many copies, right? Uh, yes. I mean, I mean, by comparison to some other common at the time, sure. Um, I think these were also... worked? Were they common or uncommon in that I set? thought they were common. Let's take a look. They were commons. Yeah, so I, mean, I was under the impression that if there were multiple arts, that they were still on the print sheet, like as one card. That would mean there was multiple print sheets. I don't think that's true. I'm assuming so they think, were. I think they were side by side on the print sheet. Do you think they were four times as likely as other comments? Yes, some total. Yeah, probably. So I mean that that matters, but we're still talking about an era where print runs were twenty, thirty, forty, fifty times less than they are today. So 
Um, and my read on them, the, the, the kind of fluctuation we see in this card where people keep buying it out up to $15 and then somebody posts one at like 7 to 10 is, <coughs> A, people are impatient. Um, they should just be sitting on those. Uh, B, there's been, certainly there is consistent demand for the cards, from specifically from Modern, but it also looks like somebody's been accumulating these, right? Like that every time cheaper copies are posted, they snap, disappear, and we see the spike again. Um, looks like it's part of the overall pressure on the reserved list in 93, 94 cards and original printings of cards that we've seen developing all year long. Mm-hmm. I wonder... Uh... I wonder if this just goes to show that Tron players have no soul and can't appreciate something cool like this. <laughs> I, I, I see fewer players running these than I feel like I should. That's for sure. I mean, they're not they're not that expensive. They're they're about the same. They're less than a than a steam vents from Ravnica. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's like you know the same thing as picking up shocks for your for a deck type of thing, you know, 12 shocks. It's not like dirt cheap, but it's not that expensive. I mean, one of, one of the printings that, that punishes these cards is that they were part of what was caught up in the Chronicles edition that has been the boogeyman of MTG Finance ever since. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a lot of those available. Um, okay, let's move on. What do you got next for us? So next on the list, we've got Dark Confidant, uh, like Tireless Tracker, a Jund card that is making a move because the going theory is now that Jund is the level zero deck in modern um, with blood, blood braid elf. It's uh, gained some top end consistency and, and follow through power in the mid to late game that really um, brings it back on top and, you know, makes the deck to beat. And so we're seeing like modern masters, 2015 copies of dark confidant foils going from $70 to <laughs> this says 182. I have a small pile of these on my desk. So, Lord help me. I hope that's true. But I'm 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 guessing I'm going to be trying to get it out on these somewhere in the 120 to 140 range. Yeah, I mean, if they picked up 20 or 30 bucks for the foil copies at the end of the day, that would sound about right. Uh, doubling on those is seems pretty wild. Well, no, I mean this this pile that's on my desk was uh, acquired at like 65 dollars. Well, I mean doubling from 100. Yeah, or, that. Or, 75 to 200 yeah it's even more than double yeah i don't think that's a real price movement no it can't be real like marking on these got a slide like the thing is like foil rares in modern that have and this is now at high reprint risk now not not in the next six months so you've got plenty of breathing room um but by as early as say november whatever that master set ends up being that i'm expecting to be slotted in there mm-hmm. i i i <clears throat> Oh, dark confidant! is a bad morning for me. Dark confidant is always like I feel like in reprint territory. Like that's just one of those cards that they're never going to get very far from. I, I think it's going to get two to four years every time. That's kind of the pattern we've been seeing with the stuff that that matters for reprints, other than Tarmogoyf. Um, although the signal I'm getting, both from Dominaria and, I mean, what we know about that set so far, and M25 and Iconic Masters, is that in the last year, and these were decisions that were made, say, a year ago, um, they really pulled back on reprints. Like, very, very few specs have been challenged by the sets that have come out recently, right? Like, of course, each of them had their handful of cards, but a lot of those cards were cards that were relatively low demand profiles or had been reprinted so recently that they weren't really on my radar list. You know, some, some of the cards like Tarmogoyf and Dark Confidant and Cryptic Command 
were reprinted multiple times, but it was really the ebb and flow of their metagame presence that drove the crisis. Um, because even rares in these master sets, even when they're printed as at a high volume as iconic masters, um, if they're in high enough demand, they can still recover from that because there really is just significantly less of the, those sets printed than standard legal sets. Yeah. Uh, yes, I think is the short way of, of, of agreeing with you there. I, they're, they're, I, I don't know what to make of their reprint policy at this point, whether it's like whether they're coming or going, I don't know. It, they seem to be trying to set themselves up for a pattern of once every two to three years on stuff like Dark Confidant. But then you turn around and like Monocrypt showed up like three times in a year, two years or something like that. So it's, it's a little imbalance, <laughs> I feel like, at times. The Mana Crypt decision was odd, um, but it was definitely an outlier, right? So was Tarmogoyf and all three of the first master sets. Um, the the general um, state of affairs is still that, especially with new cards. Like you're you're talking about like Collected Company, Coligan's Command. They were both on my list as potential uh, cards to show up in M25. Nothing like that. No Collected Brutality. None of the more recent additions to Modern showed up at all. No, that's true. I mean, we didn't see any of those cards that were like, ah, oh, Wizards might pull a fast one and do this way earlier than we thought and kind of hammer our collective brutalities. And that just didn't come to fruition in any way, shape or form. Yeah. And that means those cards are going to get some like probably get some serious breathing room because there's no there's no place for those to get reprinted in the next little while. The next opportunity for reprints is uh, Magic 2019. But I suspect that 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 those core sets are only going to have like. Because the core sets print into standard, right? Um, they're not going to have a bunch of stuff like Dark Confidant because they're not going to want that stuff in standard. So, you know, what reprints are they really going to slot in there? Yeah, I mean, that's going to make it... Yeah, they can't go ham on that, right? So you, you can't do Dark, Dark Confidant, most likely. Probably can't do Tarmogoyf, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, it makes cards... It's certainly trickier. Some of those cards like that are are more printable in standard than others. Um, but yeah, that does does make that challenging for a, a few of them. And I expect the, those sets to follow the pattern of Origins to be a mix of new and old cards. So <laughs> we'll see how that develops. But I, I feel like the the second half or the last two thirds of 2018 are going to be, you know, big thumbs up, all guns ablazing for MTG Finance. I just don't see the risk from the reprint side of things. Like a few of your, your cards might get picked off here at there, you know, via the core set, via whatever master style product comes out heading into the holidays. But overall, we're going to get a lot of breathing room here. We, yeah, we have been under a lot of pressure since, I don't know, what was it like summer last year? Cause we had like IMA coming and then we knew we had masters 25 and got all runs together. There was something else floating around too. And we're like, Oh man, this is going to be, well, I mean, between lot. it was like Modern Masters 2017 into Iconic Masters into M25 seemed like, you know, a cascade of reprints was going to hit us in the face and, and take down a bunch of specs and you were just going to have to absorb that. But nothing in my spec portfolio has been touched by those sets. Because Yeah, and I'm, sh- I'm sure somebody did, right? Somebody had to eat it. It just wasn't us. <laughs> well, I mean, people... Uh, the thing is that like anybody who got hit by something got benefit from something like people that were holding a bunch of blood braid elves or happened to have a play set of Jace's that they never bothered to unload. 
um, guys like you that had a bunch of FTV 20 that wasn't really going anywhere, um, all of a sudden got all these opportunities. So even if you did get hit on a card here or there, like you happened to have some Rashad and Port sitting around and you weren't smart enough to realize that that card was going to tank on reprint, um, you know, you probably got a benefit somewhere else. And I mean, just even if you got hit on some specs lately, which seems unlikely, but it's possible, like you said, um, just the stuff that's spiking off no reprint, your Snapcaster Mages, your Enemy Fetchlands, your Liliana's, Foil Tireless Trackers, Collective Brutalities, Coligan Commands, Collected Companies, all these cards are going to see, are going to have already provided strong growth from the spec period and are going to continue to provide strong growth. Like I was, I put my order in for Russian Coligan's Commands from Europe last week because A, <laughs> Russian never gets reprinted like ever. And B, that card probably gets another year or two now. I mean, maybe not, but I would put the like the odds of it being printed in 2018 at 25% or less. It's it's so overall, it, like I was going to say, it's been a rough couple months. Inter- at least it looked like it was going to be a rough couple months, but now it's way better because we don't have anything that we're looking down the barrel of like, oh, well, in three months, you're going to reprint this and then what's going to happen, right? Like that doesn't really exist at the moment. So you've got some time. Uh, to let your stuff breathe and to possibly uh, move out of it before you're worried about whatever else is on the horizon. Um, of course, there's, there's always product out there, right? And as soon as you get too complacent, that's when Wizards hammers you. But it is certainly feels a lot better today than it did, uh, you know, six months ago. Yeah, or yeah, I but, mean, uh, six months ago was real bad. <laughs> and and now that we've seen like half of the Dominaria set feel pretty confident nothing in there is, is looking too disruptive. Like it doesn't, there may be a couple of key reprints in there that we haven't seen yet, but you know, maybe you get a, maybe you get a doubling season in there or something like who knows. Um, but you can probably figure that out by looking at the theme of that set. Like if, if it fits into the nostalgia pattern that they're setting up there um, or it plays into EDH because this is, well, we'll, we'll get to that. Let's move along on our, our cards of the week. So, Dark Confident, Big Mover, Gemstone Caverns. That was a big card on stream um, and has been tearing it up, I think, in Magic Online Leagues. I think there's a deck that is using Gemstone Cavern to isolate uh, Eternal Scourge, like use it as the card that you exile off Gemstone Caverns, and then you get Mm -hmm. to cast it back in. So that means that if you have enough of them in hand, um, you basically can start the game with an extra card in hand because you get to cast it out of exile later. Um, and the rest of the deck is like Eldrazi, colorless Eldrazi pieces, I believe. Okay. That that makes sense. I was wondering, I knew it had to be something because I looked down and suddenly the two copies that I had had sold. And I'm like, all right, somebody somebody cast this somewhere. I'm just not sure who or where. <laughs> uh, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. so the deck has Gemstone Caverns and then Serum Powder. So oh. Serum Powder is the artifact for three, where anytime you can mulligan and Serum Powder is in your hand, you can exile all the cards. So if you have Serum power, Powder and a bunch of uh, Eternal Scourge, you can Serum Powder, exile your hand. The Scourges all become bonus cards that are waiting to be cast. So if you had like Serum Powder and four Scourges, you would be up four cards. Yeah, that can't be good. Right, like there's no way that that deck is actually good because it's so hard to get like the serum powder and the uh, eternal scourge in your hand at the same well, time. This this deck won the modern classic at SCG last week, March fourth. Uh, so, so it's 
keep in mind, the rest of the deck is just stuff that's already good. So first of all, we're in a Jund format. So it, arguably Eternal Scourge is excellent, right? Like a point, Jund is a point removal deck. And if Eternal Scourge becomes the target of a spell or an ability, the opponent controls, you exile it. So Lily's exi- uh, sacrifice effect gets around that. But all of the other point kill, fatal pushes, cold commands, etc., puts this thing back in exile, you get to cast it again. That's nice and grindy, right? The rest of the deck is things that are already good. Matter Reshapers, Thought Nuts, Seers, and Reality Smashers. It's running Chalice of the Void against a format where everybody's casting one drops because the format ends on turn four. And then it's got this cute little Gemstone Cavern Serum Powder combination going. And because it's all colorless Eldrazi, it's running Blink Moth Nexuses as extra threats that you have to deal with in a separate way. It's got Seagate Wreckages for card advantage in the late game. It gets to run Scavenger Grounds to clear out graveyards. It's got Muta Vaults for additional threats, Ghost Quarters. That's pretty interesting. Well, Eternal Scourge being really good against Jund is certainly the case. I won't argue that. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, if I, I, guess, I, if I was going if I was, if I was to call a card into question in this list about in terms of its efficiency, and this is from somebody who owns a bunch of foils, <laughs> Eldrazi Mimic. Uh, I always want it to get there in the Eldrazi list, and it never does for me, but it first placed a tournament and won a bunch of money. So, I mean, clearly others know better than I. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess it could be kind of like humans. Like, okay, it, it did well at one event. I get you. You know, show me three more, and then I'll, I'll believe it. I guess, yep. you know, Serum Powder has been around for a long time. I've seen a lot of people take a lot of wax at this card. Uh, and there's a reason it's still like three bucks, right? Because just it never has managed to take off and become meaningful anywhere other than vintage dredge. So uh, that doesn't mean it can't be. But for the time being, uh, I, I have to be convinced on that. It's a cool card that a lot of people have tried to make work over the years and have never gotten there. Well, this guy did. Let's see if anybody else can. The uh, <laughs> the bottom line is that Gemstone Caverns non-foils went from $10 to 30 um, that's a nice exit point. I'd be happy to get off the train because if you're right and this is a flash in the pan, you definitely want to be selling into that hype. Yeah, and even if it's not a flash in the pan, like how expensive can this card really be, right? Like it's not going to be a $70 land because uh, the, the deck is would have to have like months of sustained results to pull that off and even that's pushing it. Um, well, one of the so 30 is pretty close to the peak. One of the things that's interesting here though, is that there are, are five or six different Eldrazi builds in Modern that people are running. You've got everything from black-white Eldrazi and Taxes that I run. You've got green-red Eldrazi Tron. You've got, um, I've seen black-red versions, black-white versions um, at, that are uh, more mid to high range than, than the version I run. Um, you've got a couple of different versions of colorless Eldrazi Tron, including the one you see most often that doesn't look like this. Um but when you have all of those people playing different variants of a deck, if this deck became the known best version, then you have a bunch of people that can shift into it fairly easily because they already have all of their reshapers, thought not seers, reality smashers, all the colorless lands, Eldrazi temples, and so forth. Um, so that's interesting. Like anytime, like you can, uh, a card is potentially isolated inside an archetype, but the archetype has a bunch of variants that can adjust to the meta. So it can't be just hated out of existence based on a simple meta shift. It just, you know, swaps 10 cards and keeps rolling. Um, That's where a card has a better chance to appreciate than otherwise. True, true, for sure. You know, that kind of flexibility that you have available to don't, I don't question that. Um, (laughs) This this list also had a smuggler's copter in the main. (laughs) Miser's smuggler copter? Yeah, yeah. in in 
in an Eldrazi build where you don't even have like one drops. <laughs> I, I guess I guess Thought Not Seers are two drops in an ideal hand. But well, you know, I guess uh, you know sometimes your Reality Smasher just can't get in, so you got to switch it up and go with a yeah, because tra- because trample is so hard to get through with in, in <laughs> modern. Um, all right, so that was cool. Uh, Deep Channel Mentor from Shadowmoor went from a dollar to three fifty. EDH for Kamena, super low, low supply. Everything from that block um, tends to be hard to find. Soul Flare from Fate Reforged. The foils went from a dollar to three forty. I mean, this is heartbreaking because I have a bunch of foils, but I think I bought them above three forty, <laughs> and it's got to get uh, a little further down the road. The streamers need to keep pushing this Soul Flare deck that where you dump a bunch of keywords in the graveyard and then your soul flayer becomes this like battleship monster. Um, you know, this is the kind of card that you're going to see go through little spikes like this and then recede over and over again as people realize how bad the combo is. Yeah, that's, I saw this and I'm like, Oh, somebody's not actually playing this. Are they, <laughs> this is not what somebody's doing. <laughs> Come I, on, you people. I think it was streamer activity, not tournament activity. So you definitely add more salt to your take. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Uh, after that, I guess we have Deathblade Elite uh, from non foil or uh, non foils from Legions. We talked about this two weeks ago. The foil copy. It's a popper card uh, that looks like the non foil copy is up to like a dollar fifty two dollars, whatever. After that, Day of Destiny from Betrayers of Kamigawa. It's an enchantment that gives all your legends plus two plus two. Um, foils from three to about ten dollars. That's a buyout. Uh, now that we know that Dominaria is a legend set, um, so this is an interesting, an interesting notification uh, that you're going to see a lot of push on legendary matters cards. So Kamigawa is obviously rife uh, with those types of um, of things, and you know they're they're dotted around elsewhere in the Magic landscape as well. But Kamigawa certainly got a chunk of them. Um, you know, this set is essentially, I heard somebody say it's it's Kamigawa times Time Spiral um, with a ton of legends available. It's kind of like an EDH Masters in a way. I know you mentioned earlier. So um, these types of effects that play up legendary creatures and legendary permanents are, are very interesting. And to give you another indication on that, uh, it's not on our list because uh, it hasn't been caught yet uh, by the tracking. But I did go, oh, you know what? I should look up. Leyline of Singularity, because that makes all of your stuff legendary. That'll be cool. Nope, they're just gone. They're just, they're just gone. Uh, so people are moving on that stuff. <laughs> okay, so next on our list, we've got Ethereal Armor Foils from Return to Ravnica. This is a Boggles card. Boggles has been doing well lately. Again, a deck that can prey on Jund if Jund is Ascendant. Um, I think I pulled a Korean foil ethereal armor out of a box that I snapped open just recently. So I'm assuming I'm going to get like 15 on that. That's pretty nice. Um, we've got liability from Mercadian masks foils in theory going from $2 to eight. Uh, hard, not very heavily played in EDH. I think this is just people kind of like rolling forward. <laughs> they started at 93, 94 and they're just buying through the foils starting in the Urza's block. Um, at forward and just targeting things over and over again. Um, I don't think you can make any money on that card because I don't think anybody knows it exists. Agreed. Uh, naturalize foils from Onslaught in theory went from a dollar to six dollars. I'm assuming that's a popper um, move. Yeah, it's my guess too. 
I mean, I pull, <laughs> I went back through the Super Collection for like the 50th time or something this week and pulled out a bunch of the white popper foils that were sitting in like a crap foil binder that I barely pay attention to. Things like uh, Benevolent Bodyguard and uh, Tireless Tribe and uh, Chomana's Blessing. I mean, definitely look over popper list, folks, because if you got like an old slash deep collection or you got a bunch of bulk sitting around, you probably have a bunch of $10 popper foils sitting sitting there waiting for you to pluck. Yeah, there's certainly uh, an opportunity for that type of crap out there, depending on what you've got hanging around. Uh, Spell Stutter Sprite uh, foils from Modern Masters, in theory, going from $2 to $13. Um, I don't know who's suddenly playing Spell Stutter Sprite or why they're targeting that card. Um, is Fairies a deck and popper? Uh, no, I would guess this is modern, right? Like, people think that it's fairies is good in in modern now with jace or something uh i know we saw more of it show up right after the unbannings people were trying to make it work again no um, I no mean, i'm seeing tons of popper usage is it delver mono blue delver blue uh yeah, right. esper blah, blah 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 yeah i i, I fairies is, just seems dead i haven't seen anybody talk about fairies in modern in quite some time um which is funny because it used to be like a boogeyman deck right like people were so annoyed playing before people were annoyed about splinter twin they were annoyed about blue black fairies yeah yes for sure yeah i guess i that makes sense too i it could have been either one but um i didn't realize it was quite that popular in popper makes sense though it's a good certainly an effective card in that format and they got that what is that that one mana one that bounces another creature in your hand so like you can spell setter sprite something and then bounce the fairy bounce the spell setter sprite back to your hand with that like other one mana fairy and then spell setter sprite again yeah uh, i'm trying to make a like mardu tokens build work with bitter blossom uh lingering souls young pyromancer and monastery mentor um but <laughs> even bitter blossom has has trouble earning its keep in modern these days yeah that uh never really panned out the way people thought it might mm-hmm. Um, so next up is uh, Scent of Ivy from Urza's Destiny. Foils are like $0.50 cents to $3. It's, you know, a foil Urza's card. There's virtually no copies to begin with. Somebody bought the last couple. Uh, and Scent of Ivy is... Wait. Oh, these wrong stupid tabs. I have stuff in them. It is a... Yeah, it's a common, so it's probably also popper. Um, <clears throat> it's my best guess. I don't see any popper. Any other I don't see any popper decks that are running it on popper lists, but maybe somebody yeah. thought they would be. Okay, I mean that's possible too. I suppose someone was just hoping that popper players start using it. A, a three dollar card is just not where you want to be anywhere. So moving right along. Yeah, uh, and find uh, deserted temple from Odyssey, uh, thirty five to <laughs> supposedly. <laughs> 500 that's uh that's a hard one to believe i don't yeah. think i would spend 500 dollars for this do you want, but it is a do you want two hmm? japanese gaia's cradles or this card yeah right uh it's it taps for colorless and then you can pay one to untap target land so it's nifty i mean it's it's definitely a useful card in um commander but 500 dollars for foils i doubt it but there were probably like uh no copies you know there's one or two copies available i'm sure at, like 35 one guy bought one and somebody's like oh, i'm gonna list mine for 500 so whatever well, probably the same guy that has the bgs 9.5 up on ebay for 500 yeah yeah probably <laughs> uh, this is not a card i would have thought to bgs uh me neither 
I mean, I've seen some really odd cards that have been <laughs> graded. Like, really? This is I mean, what you opted for? I mean, don't get me wrong. In a world with all of these, these undervalued uh, flip lands from the Ixalan block that all tap for obscene amounts of mana, uh, this card's stock in EDH goes up for sure, right? Because if you're playing a deck that can run multiple of those and you have reason to be doing so, this thing can potentially be untapping Growing Rights of Illamok, can be untapping the one that makes a bajillion colorless mana equal to your life total or whatever, can be untapping Gaia's Cradle, etc. Yes, yeah, it, it does keep getting better um, as we go, so um, that certainly helps its positioning. It's not on the reserve list, though, and it is the kind of card they could reprint. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the Odyssey foils will still be cool at that time because they'll be the original ones. Um, but yeah, you could definitely see this. I mean, this is really easy to put in standard too, right? Like this isn't inherently some wild busted card. Mm-hmm. So top uh, top mover on our list this week, Touch of Darkness from Legends, uh, a card I don't think it was on anybody's radar and I'm not really buying into this whole spike premise. Um, in theory, from a dollar to 15 Maybe it can hold 6 to 12 once it recedes from that. But, you know, the pressure continues on the early days of Magic. And even these terrible cards uh, have been holding plateaus reasonably well. Yeah, nothing here worth mentioning, I think. Just whatever, another one of these. All right, Um, let's move on. Segment two, our cards to watch. Uh, James, why don't you get us started? Sure. So the first thing I was taking a look at this week was uh, a fresh look at which expeditions might have moved. Um, or look primed to move. I, I realized that Expedition Strip Mine, Strip Mine's in 28,000 decks on EDH, uh, dot, uh, EDH Rec. And you can get them for about $70 now. Supply is relatively low. Um, I could see it easily cresting 100 and maybe even 120 uh, within the year. EDH players are going to chip away at this. There's no way we're getting a reprint of this anytime soon. Um, just seems like a solid expedition to be taken a look at. It was also from the Oath of the Gatewatch expeditions, which are definitely in lower supply than the uh, Battle for Zendikar because the post-Christmas set print run is almost certainly significantly lower than the fall heading into Christmas print run. Yeah, this is a, a definitely a good one. I hadn't thought about this, but Strip Mine is very popular in EDH. Uh, you know, $70 is, I don't want to say it's a lot, it's a touch on the higher side as far as like buying into the expeditions. I mean, you and I were shooting for them at like 20 and 30 and $40 a while ago. Um, but even still like 70 to a hundred, 110, 120 does not sound out of the realm of possibility on this, especially with a little bit more time. So I think this is a good choice. Yeah. I don't think it's, it's not, there's no reason there's no pressure on this card. That's going to like make it snap overnight. However, what we have seen with both, ever since we started making a lot of noise and a bunch of people realized kind of uh, in delayed fashion that masterpiece inventions were going to do significantly better um, than the expeditions had. Uh, people have been doubling back on the expeditions and taking a closer look. I've, we saw Hallowed Fountain uh, see some serious movement recently. Um, and, you know, arguably there is a, at least as much demand for this card from the EDH side of things. There's, mm-hmm. there's also copies of this over in Europe that we can pick up for like 40 to 50 euro, which will work out to five or 10 less than the 70 posted price. So opportunities uh, abound. That's pretty interesting. Uh, I like it. I like strip mine. Keep your eyes out. Um, might be one of the first expeditions to really get a great boost. 
Um, okay. My first card this week is a Baral, Chief of Compliance. So we know Storm has been gotten a lot more popular in modern. Baral's a cool card. But what really got me thinking about him is the new Amber Mox. So I saw Amber Mox come out. Um, I went looking for two mana legendary creatures just to kind of see where any synergies may lie. Um, and Baral is really interesting because he makes your spells cheaper and Amber Mox wants you to cast spells. So you can turn to Baral and then play Amber Mox and now you have one available mana plus your spells are cheaper. So like your mana leaks are suddenly one um, and that, you know, that type of thing. So uh, that's a really nice kind of one, two punch on turn two. your counter spell suddenly get cheaper or whatever else you want to cast. And uh, you turn your Amber Mox on. So then you untap and now you have just, you know, then it's a lot of power available to you right there. Um, also in Storm, it allows you to do some cool stuff because then you can play like you can do that on turn two. And then on turn three, you start going off. You tap your Amber Mox to, you know, cast a spell. Uh, and then if you draw another Amber Mox, that's just kind of like a Lotus Petal. You just play the new Amber Mox, eat the old one and then tap the new one for mana again, which is... Um, you know, anyone who's played like Cheerios or decks like that have used Mox Opal in that fashion. So they're familiar with the concept. Anyways, Brawl is around $8 for foils. I think uh, I think you could ride this up towards 20 bucks if he gets popular. Um, you know, he's already supporting a pretty strong price, uh, which means there's there's real demand there. This uh, Amber Mox could be a cool synergy with him, not just in Storm, but other strategies. Uh, and he's cool in, in EDH as well. Um, so it's an interesting card that I think is going to continue to see popularity in a couple different places yeah he, he has reason to be used in in <clears throat> both edh and modern and the foils supply has dropped significantly since we first mentioned this card like maybe nine ten months ago mm -hmm. um you know we flagged it early on as something that was going to move at some point very you know relatively few copies available under ten dollars and once those dry up this could post up in the 15 to 20 range pretty easily based on the curve yep and it looks like it's in almost five thousand edh decks as a non-commander which is quite a few i mean i, I don't know if i'm convinced about the amber mox <laughs> thing because the rest of the deck I don't know what that looks like because Baral wants you to cast instants and sorceries and, and additional copies of Amber Mox that you draw later are potentially bad. Like is Simeon Spirit Guide just better in that deck? I don't know. The, um, but I, I certainly believe in Baral and I certainly believe in Amber Mox, uh, perhaps for different reasons, but we can get to that as, as we cover that card a little, little further down the road. Well, I, I, I'm um, not here to build the deck. I, all I'm going is, oh, this is a cool little synergy. <laughs> Uh, maybe somebody else will figure this out. I, I guess I'll put it to you this way. I think Burrell gets there with or without Amber Mox, just because it's a strong card. Sure. Um, and there's just not... there. The foils have dried up uh, to a significant degree already. Um, so next on my list this week, we've got just regular old copies of Metamorphose, which we only ever saw in the underprinted Shadowmoor, and then once in Modern Masters, and then never again. And even though it was a common, turned into an uncommon in Modern Masters, which is essentially like a mythic rare based on the print run for that set. We basically haven't seen this at common in forever. And we just got M25 and it's not there. And as far as we know, it's not anywhere else. So people are realizing this card, um, you know, tunes your deck in Modern uh, and fixes for color and potentially adds storm count. Um, so I've seen all sorts of different brews running it lately. Um, and supply is drying up. 
$8 for this seems kind of crazy, but I think it could get to 15 before it sees a reprint. If it doesn't see a reprint in 2018, then I think it definitely hits 15. And if it's a card you might need, definitely get them. Um, if it's a card you want to spec on, you might be able to make like $15 a playset or something some point this year. Uh, yeah. Uh, Monomorphosis surprisingly keeps dodging reprints. Uh, I, I would have thought we would have seen it again by now after the first Modern Masters. Um, just that's one of those things I would have been like, no, stay away because we'll get it again. And then it just hasn't come again. Uh, you know, it's interesting with Monomorphos Brawl. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I think this is interesting. Like eight bucks for an uncommon is a little, is a little odd to look at, but uh, the card is very popular. The po- it's been getting more popular in, in modern uh, in the last couple months, even more so than it was before that, you know, it's branching out from just storm. Uh, and it's a cool card and it, it plays well with these sort of uh, mono reduction strategies if there's anything like that going on. So uh, yeah, without a reprint, this thing is just going to keep going. It could be another Mishra's bobble. Oh, I like that, that parallel. Uh, okay. So my other pick this week is also based on the Dominaria spoilers. I was trying to pick up on some of the sub themes that were running through the set because we always have these sub themes that are floating around out there. It boosts an EDH deck or two, like we've seen every time. You know, we saw it with Kamena, we saw it with uh, Locust God. You know, these types of things. Uh, and you'll notice there's a Knight sub theme in the spoilers. Now, there's not a lot in there so far. It's clear that there's a Knights Matters theme, but we don't have a ton of it. But we only have a part of the set. So I'm kind of banking on there being more support for the night sub theme on this one. If there isn't, then, oh, well, I guess it doesn't work. But assuming that we get some more in that vein, uh, Kinsbale Cavalier from Morning Tide. Foils are three bucks right now. It is a four mana two, two that gives all of your knights double strike, which is a whole lot of damage. Um, just, okay, every card in your deck has double strike now. So pretty wild. Uh, three buck foils from Morning Tide. Like, you know, that set that they made like eight boxes of. Um, so, you know, if if we get some decent night support in Dominari and people will go to start building EDH decks with that, this is bound to hit <clears throat> 7 to $10 at least for the foils and possibly even more depending on how popular it is. Um, you know, the tribal stuff is never hugely popular, not in the way it used to be, but there's definitely people out there that enjoy this type of stuff. Yep. I mean, I wasn't super impressed with the knights I've seen so far in the Dominaria list, but that doesn't mean cards like this won't move. Yeah, <laughs> based on the same logic you just laid out, yeah, it, we we see we've seen it again and again on tribal cards that you get a pretty brief opportunity uh, if you're holding to sell into the hype, and then it probably recedes because um, unless something is you know a top ten commander at any given time. Uh, cards that are narrowly associated with that deck are going to have trouble holding. Yep, it's not going to last forever, but you you might have that window to, to kind of do something with it. Yep. All right, my last pick this week is uh, one that I think has a probably uh, a slightly better shot on the back of Dominaria, and that's Reki, the History of Kamigawa. We already saw this card move and foils maybe some good money uh, that we picked up in Europe uh, mid-summer last year when we heard that the uh, legendary rule was being changed so that you could have multiple versions of the same Planeswalker character and play at the same time. And this is the one from, uh, I believe it's Betrayers of Kamigawa, two and a green for a one-two, and any time you cast a legendary card, you draw a card. So it's just a card-drawing engine in a Legends-focused deck. It seems very likely based on all the Legends uh, in Dominaria, and we know, spoilers starting here, folks, um, that we're getting a legend in every pack of Dominaria. 
So people are going to be holding a lot of legends and wondering what to do with them and probably building EDH decks around them, Captain Sisse or, um, you know, whatever else. This guy slots right in there. There's no way it doesn't make that deck um, because if you're piling 40, 50, 60 legendary cards, and keep in mind that this guy triggers off legendary lands. He triggers off... He does, right? Uh, Ricky. Let me just double check that before I talk nonsense. <laughs> he, uh, a legendary spell. Legendary spell. So not legendary spell. lands. But we're getting legendary enchantments. We're getting legendary artifacts um, and a ton of creature legends. So basically anything legendary that's not a land, this guy's drawing you a card. Um, and it doesn't look like he's likely to see a reprint because most of the characters we've seen unveiled have been references to past characters. Um, first appearances of old characters you haven't seen before. Um, and very few of them are going to be new versions. They're going to be like descendants of and what have you um, of characters from prior eras. So I think this guy, uh, the supplies already was relatively low from last summer. Um, it had prices had receded 20 or 30% from the peak of the last spike, but uh, pressure is already being applied to this card as people realize um you know, poke around for for specs and cards to acquire based on Dominaria's uh, reveals. And I think this hits $15, $20 this year, assuming we don't see it anywhere. Yeah, I was surprised to see that this was... I saw this on your list, and then I was like, wait, it's still only that much? This, I thought this would, wanna, would have been one of the first cards people would have gone after uh, once the Dominaria spoilers came out. So I, I was surprised it was as cheap as it is at $8. Bucks. Um, but it's, it's certainly a good choice. Uh, you know, that's going to be... Definitely a card people are going to be interested in when they're trying to build Legendary Matters decks. Exactly. All right, so that's our list for this week of cards to watch that you might want to pick up on. We're going to do a little bit of a end run through the metagame week in review. Um, haven't really tackled it uh, last couple of weeks, but there was some uh, cool decks uh, at the Legacy uh, Open. Uh, no, Open? Yeah, Open for SCG. Um, last weekend, we saw the new SEG schedule, by the way, um, for the next half of the year, and they are all in on team tournaments, a little bit of legacy and a bunch of modern. There's almost no standard on that list. They basically seeded that ground to see if. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, but I guess it makes sense, especially team events have proven to be very popular, right? Like we know that players have gotten excited about those every time. Everyone that I know is currently at a team tournament here in my city today, uh, you know, they want to be part of that. Players just really enjoy that format. And even if it's not as spiky as the other ways to play Magic, uh, it brings a lot of players out of the world work, especially players that maybe have kind of taken a bit of a step back and don't play all the time. But like the chance to go play with their buddies is is very fun. Yeah. So 719 players at the Legacy Open Worcester uh, last weekend. And... Grixis Delver was deck of the weekend, uh, four copies in the top eight. Um, people talking about how this deck is just very well positioned in legacy right now. Um, Elves was in second. Uh, we had Eldrazi Agro uh, in fifth. Um, this being pretty standard. Uh, Eldrazi getting to run uh, Eye of Ugin. That must feel fantastic in 2018. Two copies of Umazawa Jite, Chalice of the Void, the usual suspects. Uh, and a lands deck was in the eighth. But the deck that really caught my eye was the Miracles deck that Jim Davis was running. Because uh, if you were paying attention to my feed or you're a fan of Telerian uh, Academy, um, the professor had one video 
uh, I think it was last weekend or early this week, where he was talking about the Challenger decks for Standard and took a couple of swipes at MTG Finance. Um, I posted a thread about it, trying to provide some clarity on the topic. And then the professor posted a follow-up video kind of clarifying his stance on on the topic and MTG Finance, which I thought was a good dialogue overall for everybody. Um, and one of the thing, you know, the, the things that the prof has been harping on for ages is, you know, cost of formats and accessibility um, for players, uh, especially ones who have to be, you know, budget focused. And, you know, that's a fantastic objective, right? It makes perfect sense for all of us. The game is better for MTG Finance if there are more people capable of playing. Um, the more accessible the game is, the more demand there is for cards, the more shifts in the mega game you see as, as new people come to the forefront and so forth and so on. Um, but I thought... It- yeah, and... I was going to say, you'll hear, and you'll hear vendors and people who do a lot of card sales talk about that too. They're like, they want Dublin season reprints because they can't sell copies at $60, but they'll sell them constantly at $20. Yeah. So, I mean, the, sometimes the, you know, if you're holding inventory that appreciates past a certain price point, then retail price theory kicks in. There are just at every stage as you ratchet up the price curve, there are less and less people willing to purchase that product. And what that does is it lengthens the amount of time the product sits on the shelf. And the vendor game especially is very much about countering their overhead drag, which is persistent every day um, that you're running a store, you've got staff, you've got electricity bills, you've got rent, etc. And you need to be churning over inventory. It's all about your churn rate. Like the, the people making the most money in the vendor game are the ones who take on the, the least dead inventory that market the hardest, that flip inventory fast, and they're making their, you know, the gap on their buy list price and their retail price over and over and over and over again. And they're able to, you know, compound their profits that way. Um, so a bunch of hundred, if you all your inventory was hundred dollar cards, you're going to have a real bad time of it. <laughs> you really want to be in that like two dollar to twenty dollar sweet spot with most of your inventory. Um, and so, yeah, all that plays in. So the thing, the reason I bring all this up is that the, Jim Davis ran a Miracles Brew. Davis is a known personality, hardly the kind of guy to, to run Rogue. But his Miracles, you know, topless Miracles deck was running just one dual land in Legacy and finished fourth. He's got one Tundra in the deck. All the rest of it is uh, basic lands and a bunch of fetch lands. And this was a deck with you know, the usual assortment of blue-white control elements. He had Jace the Mind Sculptor, Search for Azkanta, Cancel's Judgment, Counter Spells, Flusterstorm, Force of Will, and then his creatures were Snapcaster Mage and Monastery Mentor. Um, deck was well-positioned. He did well with it. And again, like, that's a pretty cheap deck to bring to bear, even with the recent jump in Jace prices. Uh, yeah, it is. It's interesting um, that he would choose to do that. I, it's probably because he couldn't get the cards, don't you think? I, I find it hard to believe that Jim Davis doesn't have access to Miracle's dual lands. Uh, it, yeah, it's it's sort of an odd choice. Uh, but, I mean, you know, you're never going to get away from legacies being needed in or duels being needed in legacy, right? Like, that's just never going to change. But I guess Jim is showing that, like, you don't have to need all of them. You can sometimes trim back. But I have to imagine this is more of a, an isolated case than a standard like, oh, it turns out you only need one dual per deck type of thing. Like, you know, you can't play Salt Eye Delver uh, with one with one dual land or two dual lands. Yeah, it's not that you can play every deck. The point is that in every format, there are one or more price conscious decks. 
there are, there are budget options in every format is I guess what I'm getting at. And even when popper people start fully foiling out their, you know, popper pulpits, you know, there will still be opportunities to just play the $5 version of, of some worse deck. So yeah, it's, 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 it's nifty and you're right. There's always affordable decks in each format. I don't know. I guess I don't really think about it being worth harping on or like, I don't find it like that compelling just because it's cool that Jim was doing this, but like, other than that, it's like, eh, okay. Like the people who want to play legacy, like have art can already find popper decks or like affordable decks that don't require that, all that type of stuff that are still competitive. And the people that, uh, just want to complain about it being too expensive to play. Don't care. Like they're not trying, they, they want to be able to play every deck in the format for $5 a deck and are like, you know, if I can't afford Tabernacle the, the Veil, then it's magic finance fault. So I don't know. I It's cool that Jim Davis did it. I just don't see this uh, changing any hearts and minds. Yeah, fair you know? enough. All right. So before we jump into uh, a spoiler full uh, Dominaria uh, discussion, let's talk a little bit about that 20% off eBay coupon from yesterday. Oh, yeah, I know you were uh, enjoying the ride all day long. I huh? hope all of you uh, got as much out of that as you could have. Um, I mean, it was pretty crazy. 20% off up to $500 is a free $100 bill in your pocket, folks. It basically allows you to operate pretty close to what the most aggressive buy lists are doing in terms of acquiring your specs or picking up you know, key cards for your collections, picking up some dual lands, some reserve list stuff. Um, you know, a new modern deck, what have you. Um, super, super good opportunity. Um, also worth noting that those kind of coupons can be applied on a per account basis one time. So a very good reason to have four, five, six, seven eBay accounts uh, set up depending on your love, you know, your volume of activity and your availability of funds. Because you know, if you had 10 accounts yesterday, and you had relevant things to be buying. Um, you know, you could have pocketed an extra thousand dollars in value. I mean, that's just undeniably great. Yeah, that is would have been a hell of a buy. Uh, yeah, I didn't get a chance to get in on this because just the way my schedule worked out, all uh, I was wasn't really at a computer most of the day. Um, but I got some cards listed late in the day, but at that point, I think it was too late. I did get uh, several offers on a couple cards I had listed at like 10.30, 10.40, 10.50. I think people trying to get in because it ended at 11 p.m. Eastern, I think, right? Is that correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah, so people were trying to get in under the buzzer. And I noticed all the offers were expired uh, after 11 o'clock. Um, but yeah, a, re- a really good opportunity there. And it's, it's you can really do some digging uh, as well. Um you know, looking for people who are, you know, might just have singles for the EDH deck that you want, right? Gives you a chance to snag those at a, at a decent price as well. Uh, beyond, beyond, you know, you can do a lot of work with it with your specs, but like, you know, you can kind of think about outside the box. 20% off everything is is pretty cool. Uh, it gives you a lot of room to sort of get some interesting pickups in there for yourself. It's pretty crazy because it wasn't even limited to magic, right? Like that was essentially a site-wide sale. So cell phones, video games, toy finance, whatever. I mean, the, the opportunities were endless. Some guy posted that he bought some new shit for his car, um, like brake pads or something. Yeah. I mean, the, the it's just, it's pure value and you, you don't want to be leaving it on the table. One of the other things that was interesting was sealed product um, through Sports & More, who is setting the standard as what looks almost certainly to be a distributor who sells directly through eBay. Um, is setting the like basement bargain pricing for pretty much every new set that comes out right now. And they had um, boxes of iconic masters at like 125 or 130 or something. 
heading into this sale. So picked up four boxes of that at $95, including all of the various discounts on, on eBay. Um, $95 for a master set. I mean, the EV on the set is low, but still $95. Yeah, that's that's nuts. And like, isn't monitoring like forty five or fifty bucks still? Maybe even more. It's yeah, it doesn't take much. Yeah, sixty bucks right now. I guess there's some available at fifty. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's so cheap, and it is going to take a while for these to really go anywhere. But even still, that's that's pretty interesting. People people were scooping up the lowest price copies uh, of Modern Masters, Modern Masters, Modern Masters twenty fifteen, Modern Masters twenty seventeen. Uh, saw Conspiracy 2 moving. Um, I, I said that I've recommended to get in at, you know, this was like $70 a box for Conspiracy 2. There's a lot of goodies in that in that set. Um, I bought some Iconic Masters um, on the basis that I could use it for drafts and content creation and so forth. Going to be pretty hard to go wrong with that. And then I bought, I broke down and went ahead and bought a case of Dominaria because the price was just ridiculous. It was like $69 a box. That's so cheap. Yeah, because usually the best price for a consumer on a standard box is probably usually around 85, right? Like it's hard for the average player to find it cheaper than that. And local stores, 90 if you're lucky, I think, right? Is normal? Uh, yeah. It's been a while since I've priced a booster box at a store. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's what I used to, used to try and pay. I mean, 69... <sighs> Neither, I, I wouldn't say that either of those purchases were optimized for MTG Finance. The correct play yesterday was to buy stuff like, you know, Gaia's Cradles, you know, stuff that's, that has, or has appreciated heavily lately, but is, continues to dry up. There was Japanese Gaia, Gaia's Cradles for like 225 shipped. Um, you know, I think that's a future five or $600 card within a year or two. Um, and that was the, the better finance play. Get, just get a couple singles. Don't have a, you know, you won't have heavy shipping costs to deal with it later. Um, you're not going to need to worry about it or do much with it if you're trying to, you know, maximize the efficiency of your time spent, minimize the number of transactions to recoup, you know, that three hundred dollar bill. That's definitely where you want to be. But I figure with like, I'm in Canada, right? So I'm picking up boxes at sixty nine in Canada. Like locally, those boxes are going to be like Dominary boxes will sell for like one hundred and twenty plus tax. If I just offer one hundred and twenty no tax, I can flip them super easily locally if I decide I want to. Or I can split the case with my pops because he always wants some boxes of each new set. Um, and I did it kind of with the thought that maybe there are actually masterpieces in this set after all, even though they didn't show up in the the spoilers that we saw. Um, and because I think the set is going to be good long term for EDH. Um, so we'll see how it plays out. Um, but I mean, the other side of it was the sale, like the selling side. Uh, heading into these kind of sales, you want to make sure your inventory is posted, folks, because you get to do something that you you almost never get to do as a seller. Offer a huge discount that you don't eat. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got guys like, you know, Dougie J um, posting good deals on Twitter all the time. Um, and he does that because he can make more than if he sells things through a buy list and he's operating, you know, he's buying at buy list level and then flipping below retail to make sure that his churn is really low. Um, the time he holds inventory and everybody loves that because they, they're getting a deal and, and he, he loves it because he gets to flip stuff quicker. Um, but he eats the difference between retail and whatever he chooses to sell at. So if he puts a $20 card at 17 or something, um, and buy list would have been 16, he wins a little bit and the person that buys it wins a little bit. But in this case, eBay eats that 20%. So, you know, I was selling $200 soul rings at the start of the day. By the end of the day, I was selling $240 soul rings. 
and the soul rings were marked down 20%. So people were still getting like several dollars off what the posted price was before uh, the start of the, the sale. I mean, it was, it was crazy overall. I did two th- over 2000 us on eBay yesterday. And that's just like, as a vendor, that's nothing, but like as a hobbyist, that's incredible because my target for the year is something like $30,000 um, on 18 to 20,000 spent, right? Like that's the kind of rollover I'm after. And to do 2000 in a day really gets a leap up on the goals for the year. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be more than most people will manage all year long, I would imagine. Also, I'm annoyed that you were getting 240 for your soul rings because I think I had mine priced at 250 and nobody, nobody bit. Well, the other thing for people to keep in mind is that, yes, this whole thing is over with now. And if you missed the boat, you missed the boat, but not quite because keep in mind what happened yesterday. Literally tens of millions of dollars of inventory sold through. And it's going to take time for some of that to restock because some of that stuff like is very rare. So like, for instance, Modern Masters 2015 Japanese boxes were selling well, especially if they were from sellers that weren't overseas. Um, and things like Masterpiece Soul Ring still exist in like reasonable quantity on TCG player because that obviously that there was no action over there while all the action was on eBay. But the are on, there are only like four or five copies of Masterpiece Soul Ring existent at all left on eBay. So you're going to get to name your price. And I think this my fourth card, if I had to choose one of the week that's about to hit a tipping point again, is the Soul Rings um, because they got drained so heavily and none of that's going to get flipped through, right? Like all of that is going to be stuff that people picked up for their collections. Every single person I talked to on Twitter that bought from me on eBay, where we like negotiated the deal on DM and then I posted it for them on eBay to activate was buying for a deck. And I asked them which decks and they were inevitably, you know, name a random commander. And I sold through Masterpiece Chalice of the Voids um, into Modern. And then Mana Crypts and Soul Rings were the bulk of the sales yesterday. And if you're still holding that stuff, now you've got an opportunity to sell into a drained market, right? True. And uh, one thing I didn't hear you mention, and I'm not sure if it syncs up the same way in Canada, but we're in prime tax season right now over here. Um, you yeah, guys do your taxes, yeah, your taxes now as well. So that, that drives well with that because people are getting, you know, refund checks for a couple hundred to a couple thousand dollars. And they're like, oh, well, now I have a couple extra bucks. And I'm sure this is why eBay timed it, right? Like for sure. Uh, but it's like, oh, I've got a couple extra, extra bucks in my pocket that I didn't have before. I don't have to feel quite as bad about spending 200 bucks on a soul ring because it's not 20% off. I just got all this extra money. Why not? Uh, so and that and we're still in tax season for a little while. You've got probably another month-ish or so, maybe, um, for those checks to still be burning a hole in people's pockets. The filing deadline, so that was like April first, right? So uh, you know, and then people will get checks a week or two after that. So you've got some time, um, but that that definitely played into it. It, 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 it. It's cool. I think I was talking to some people yesterday. I actually think Solring could hit three hundred fairly easily, right? If you were selling them at like two forty. Uh, and we just, and you know, several more, a couple tens of copies of that just sold through yesterday between you and other vendors. There is, uh, it's getting low. It's definitely getting low. And we know that that's like the EDH card, right? I'm going to hold back like four because I think 18 months out, it could be a $500 card. You think it's eight, eight, 18 months? You think it's 500 or could be, I should say? If it doesn't get banned in EDH, definitely. I don't because think ban it. it then it's the it's the number one card in EDH, right? The first ah. card that makes every deck. Yeah. So it's 
it's probably going to get there <laughs> because it's a simple demand supply equation. They're not going to reprint the card like that. We, we might, we could easily see a foil soul ring sometime soon, but it won't be this one. What if they'll put in Dominaria? Good. Theoretically. Nah. Well, yeah, because then it's as, like, as what though? It can't, it can't be in standard. Yeah. That's crazy. If there's masterpieces, it, it can come back. But I don't think they're not, they don't need to go to the well on stuff that they just printed two years ago for masterpieces. Cause as much as people think that masterpieces were played out, it's really more that they managed it poorly. Yeah. <laughs> there are plenty of targets left. It's just the Amonkhet frames fell flat and then people were complaining and they bailed. So, and, and I think the, the sense I'm getting across the board with them is they're trying to um, spread out their hype equity, their reprint equity, et cetera, over a very long period of time, which is a signal like they don't have a, a master stroke solution, like a thing to like a real like amazing bomb to drop on us um, in the sense of like when we got planeswalkers for the first time, brand new card type. Holy crap. So cool. We haven't really seen anything like that for quite a long time in Magic. Yeah, I don't. And I, mean, I guess it would have been masterpieces, right? Like it's probably the only other yeah, thing sure. in that vein. Yeah, and 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 that's cool. But they're really just foil promos that have great, you know, varying degrees of greatness in terms of their framing. People weren't that excited about the expedition framing. Um, a lot of people still prefer like Judge Foil fetches, for instance. And Amonkhet was a real mixed bag. Um, and frankly, I think that anybody who likes those frames has no taste. I had, had a bunch of them on my desk, desk the other day, and I was just like, these, these are, you can't read the card. The art was stunning in that set of, yeah, I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> They're bad. But the, the Kaladesh masterpieces are very well received. Um, and so a lot of the, this is going to depend on the cards they choose and the framing. So, you know, maybe we get them in Dominaria, maybe we don't. But we will get them again in the future. They haven't said that they're done with them. And there's tons of ground to cover. Like we haven't seen, if we get them in Dominaria, it wouldn't surprise me to see the first Planeswalker masterpieces, which, you know, (laughs) are going to be a pretty big deal. Because one of the things that drove the price of some of the Kaladesh inventions is that they all fit into the affinity deck in Modern, right? You had Ravager, um, uh, Ornithopter, and was it Steel, Steel Overseer? Overseer, uh, Mox Opal. Uh, there were right. like four, four or five. Right. So picture picture what happens to the most popular deck in EDH, Atraxa. Um, subvariant Atraxa Planeswalkers, which is what I ran when I played with you when you were up at GB Toronto. And if like 10 or 15 of those Planeswalkers are available in Masterpiece, which Atraxa collector is not going to start acquiring them one by one? Yeah, for sure. That's going to be... Going to be popular, no question there. Uh, even, I wonder, like, you're going to get a lot of collectors on that too, right? Like, not just the attractive players, but just people who enjoy collecting those types of cards and collecting Planeswalkers, because there's a lot yeah. of those people out there that collect them. Uh, so there'd be a big demand there as well. It's a tricky frame, so I'm sure they're taking their time with it till they really know they've got it right, because you need to include so much information. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm all about them doing textless bolts masterpieces, but it's hard. Like if they ever do that, there's only a very select set of cards they can do it with. Um, Planeswalkers is probably not on that list. <laughs> you, you can't take things that have three abilities that move in different directions and a starting loyalty and, and expect that to be work on a textless card. 
<laughs> no, they can. Uh, but this is my textless Sark in the Mad. Uh, what do you mean you don't know what he does? It seems doesn't everybody know this card? Yeah. So I mean, I I would think it they it might be an opportunity for them to keep the normal elements on the on the card, but do a really cool new treatment. So for instance, we we were looking at my black uh, planeswalkers from SDCC and lamenting that they are just impossible to read. Oh, yeah. But such a there are a bunch of other ways to go. Like, the print house can do a lot more than just basic foiling, folks. <laughs> There's a giant print house across the street from my house. We work with them all the time in my company. And there are many, many options in terms of things you could do to a magic card um, that would make it look super cool. And hopefully they, they will settle on one of those and, and show us a really amazing frame set on the next next run of masterpieces um anyway so we're that, running short on time that, that actually brings up an interesting point though uh that you had been talking about before uh we got on the cast as you had talked you were saying that the uh whatchamacallit the masterpieces are not in the spoiler but and you made a comment that they were in the other spoilers so you were you had uh, a bit of a conspiracy theory going on do you want to share that with our listeners i don't think it's so much as a conspiracy theory as to say that <laughs> We were all social media was flooded with negative commentary about Masters 25. And then all of a sudden, a Wizards employee in China leaks the release notes document. And no one is talking about Masters 25 anymore. Now everybody's talking about how awesome Dominaria looks and how nostalgic it is. And that is exactly the complaint (laughs) that was being levied at M25 was that it wasn't nostalgic enough. And that between Iconic Masters and M25, people were disappointed. So all I'm going to say is that in the agency world, and I've been operating in this world for 20 years, I have been involved in many conversations where PR was quote unquote leaked to, to steer a conversation in a direction. And I'm not convinced that's what happened here because blowing your hype engine this soon um, can be problematic in terms of making sure that you have maximum impact on impressing upon players the need to buy a product at the point where they can most easily access it, meaning right before it hits shelves. That's where you want the demand to be really pent up. But at the same time, I would argue that look what the 20% coupon did for Dominaria case sales through Sports and More and other vendors on eBay yesterday, right? A lot of Dominaria got sold yesterday. Do you think that much Dominaria would have been sold? If at that moment, if the spoilers weren't out, probably not because people wouldn't have had any enough knowledge about the product to have felt confident going ahead. You don't and ordering think so? It. I mean, I would like not. Just another standard. You know, set. I, I wouldn't. Like, they I know would, that there's going to be cool cards in it, right? Like when was the last time a standard set was spoiled that nobody cared about? But your motivation isn't specific enough. Like I, I would have held off for sure. I bought a case of Dominaria yesterday because it was sixty nine a box, and I had seen enough of it to know that eh, that's probably going to work out okay. Not great, but okay. Um, and I did that more as a player than a speculator. The, but if I didn't know the list, no, I would have waited. I would have just said, ah, that's down the road, and I probably would have picked up more M twenty five instead, or maybe maybe some Modern Masters twenty fifteen. So I don't think that it is, I I think that to argue that the hype engine being this far advanced is hurting their sales engine has some truth to it and is could easily, you can easily hang your hat on that and say they wouldn't have dared to interrupt their own cycle. But I think you have to at least consider what's happened to the public conversation. (laughs) And 
ultimately it doesn't really matter. Like I, either you're going to love the set or you aren't. Um, none of this changes the math around the EV of M25, which I think starts much better than people think. Um, the question then becomes how far low can that get? Um, but let's dive in on Dominaria. So what happened was there's this big leak. And because it was the release notes that explains rules for a bunch of cards, we get to see like two thirds of the set or something like 140 cards plus are now completely out there in the public. And Wizards is going to go ahead, ha- has already validated this really this leak, quote unquote, um, and tried to get out ahead of it by saying that they're going to run a bunch of the articles related to the set in terms of mechanics and stuff next week instead of waiting. So this isn't really even that spoilery because I don't think many of you are going to have uh, an easy time dodging information about this set once Wizards articles start hitting the ground next week. And yeah, nobody, um, nobody listening to this podcast well jump in is worried about spoilers. <laughs> Fair. So, I mean, uh, uh, here's the thing about this set. Very much a top-down set. It's a Legends Matters set. It's, uh, as you said, a mixture of Time Spiral and Kamigawa Block, which was the last time we got a bunch of Legends um, thrown at us. We are in theory, we're supposedly getting a Legend in every booster pack for this set, um, which probably means there's going to be quite a few, uh, a few more of them around than might otherwise have been. Um, specifically the rares, I think are going to, you're going to have more trouble making money on them in the short term. Um, but I, that's not a hundred percent certain because we haven't seen the exact, like the shakeout of the math. Like we need to see the article that explains the ratio of inclusion and so forth. Um, masterpieces, as we said, were not revealed in the spoiler information. Um, and it seems like they, it should have been because they are usually mentioned in the, uh, release notes. So if you believe in the conspiracy theater theory, they may be held back be holding back on that deliberately um, to get a little extra hype bump closer to release. And if I see that play out that way, then I'm definitely calling bullshit and saying that the whole thing was, was structured. Um, There's also the fact that I think Vorthos Mike, who's like the leading guy on lore in the community had confirmed on Twitter like weeks or months ago that masterpieces were definitely in this set because he had talked to artists and they were already talking about the art they had done for them or something. Um. Now, that doesn't mean that they definitely included them because we know, for instance, that the masterpiece um, art that was commissioned for Ixalan turned into the BioBox promos. Um, so we don't know for a fact that what, you know, even if there was art commissioned for masterpiece style cards, we don't know that they're not BioBox promos again, right? Yeah, I mean, they would have had to do artwork for these probably before wizards made the official decision to pull them right because we got the ixalan artwork uh, masterpiece artwork on like the promos so i'm wondering if they would have run into the same thing with dominaria so the artists were told that it was for masterpieces when they were um you know contracted to do it and then you know they got halfway through the art and wizards decided to axe you know the ixalan stuff could have been done and they could have been working on the uh, dominaria ones when wizards decided to pull the plug on those so that artwork might show up somewhere else you know more essentially the same thing we saw with ixalan we don't know yet but i could see that having happened i'm still i'm still leaning in the direction of there are masterpieces in this set um i think the timing's good like, I think we've had enough of a breather from Amonkhet, you know, nine months or whatever. And uh, I think they're coming off. Like, I think that during the period where they realized that the sales patterns for Iconic Masters um, were not going so well, <laughs> would have been where they would have had to lock in final decisions on this stuff. 
um, for these spring sets. Like this is an April release. Iconic Masters was in November. So it's possible that they're in there. Um, And I don't think you need to place any bets on that in terms of what it's going to be included or whatever. We'll take it as it comes. Um, But what I do feel about the set is that this is the EDH Masters set that I was talking about was going to get released this year. Um, Uh, There is a ton. Going through the card list as we've seen it thus far, there isn't very much for modern in here. Um, I mean... Yes and no. Like I, for the most part, I agree with you. It's not nearly as clear as it could have been. You know, there's no uh, Snapcaster Mage or a card that's like, oh yeah, this is a modern staple. Some of these might be modern playable, but it's definitely more of a stretch. I, I completely agree there. I mean, Benelish Marshall <laughs> for black white tokens. It's a triple white for a three three. Other creatures you control get plus one plus one. Well, you don't think that's. Uh... Is, is that is that better than intangible virtue? Doubtful. They reprinted uh, Armageddon, man. It's going to be in standard. It's going to be a big deal in modern. <laughs> yeah, so one of the one of the classes of cards that we saw here is these things called sagas. And basically, what sagas are is they're enchantments that come down, and they have chapters on them. And the chapters basically say that over the course of three or four turns, you're going to get these specific effects that will happen automatically as triggered abilities um, after your draw step. I think the first one you get for free just happens when it comes into play. So you always get that value. And then after that, you're adding a lore counter and then executing on whatever it says. So for instance, fall of the Thran, five and a white, enchantment saga. Chapter one is destroy all lands. Chapter two and three, each player returns two land cards from their graveyard to the battlefield. So you've got Armageddon for six mana. And then for the next two turns, both players get lands back. Sounds like it's going to be pretty hard to work around. Well, no. modern. yeah, I mean, you would have to have like, you'd have to cast that mm-hmm. and then exile their graveyard immediately type of thing. Mm-hmm. Like if you had a Relic of Progenitus in play, uh, you know, you slam this on six and then crack Relic and eat their graveyard. And now the second ages or whatever don't matter, which is kind of nifty. Um, does modern need a six mana Armageddon? I don't know. Isn't some boom bus, yeah, exactly. And, uh, and never uh, sees bus, buses, yeah, destroy all lands, yeah. So I mean that that effect is already available. That that card is kind of funny. Like I didn't mean that that specifically would make a big deal in modern. I just like, oh look, they reprinted Armageddon. So I don't know. Like, um, Karn could possibly so, show up. I think uh, the new Karn yeah, so, is, is very interesting. So it's a four mana Karn for five loyalty. The plus one is you reveal two cards from your library. An opponent chooses one. You put that card in your hand and exile the other with a silver counter on it. The minus one on the card is you get to take a card with a silver counter on it, put in your hand. So basically the plus one takes them to six loyalty. Your opponent sees two cards, gives you the worst one, and then it's a minus one to get the best one. Yeah. So over the course of two turns, you're getting two cards and that keeps them at neutral loyalty. Minus two puts a artifact creature in play that gets plus one plus one for each artifact you control karn's not an artifact so it's a one one by default and if you got a bunch of other artifacts it could be a three three four four five five is that the kind of card that affinity has any interest in um 
I don't think that this is necessary. You could possibly see it as like a sideboard at Infinity, maybe because it is a uh, you know a spell that draws cards, generates advantage. Uh, but I would think of this more in like a Tesserator t- type deck, maybe um, sure. or something resemble, or maybe like a Tron type card. Uh, basically, anything where you're you know you're interested in having the cards and having an annoying Planeswalker to deal with, uh, and then turning that minus two uh, because each of those you know is as big as the number of artifacts you control. So having a minus two, they can put out like five fives is pretty sick. Um, you know, that's an effective, that's powerful. It's absolutely on my list for like Russian foil acquisition because of the ultimate flexibility here. It has play potentially in standard. It has play in potentially in modern, but it's a slam dunk in EDH where any random deck that can run colorless, which is all of them, that might want to draw cards and make artifact creatures. And that's going to be a ton of commanders over time will maybe slot this in. Mm -hmm. And it probably goes into tracks of planeswalkers as well, because card advantage, like specific card advantage um, is useful there. And it's a four casting cost planeswalker, which is nice. Yeah. With no, with no color requirements. So I like this, this throws a flag up for me. Like I'm not convinced with, uh, on you know which decks and formats it makes the most sense, but it's just it's a four mana colorless Karn Planeswalker that can't super easily defend itself, doesn't kill anything, but consistently creates card advantage. Long term, slam dunk he, for the the rare foreign coils. He, I mean, he protects himself just as well as you know Elspeth Knight Errant did. Just putting a one one in the play is fine. Uh, I mean, the fact that you you lose loyalty to do it is unfortunate. Like that's not as good. Um, but you know, Jace lost loyalty to bounce creatures, which is you know semi similar. So uh, not that he's probably as good as Jace, but it just gives you an idea of, of where his power level is. Uh, I, you know, I don't really know what you're supposed to do with this information because he's definitely going to be like one of the premium mythics in the set, right? Like he's not going to be four dollars on pre-order. Uh, but good to keep in mind, I guess. There's a, there's a lot of cool EDH cards in this set, though. That's for sure. Um, I know that what anything catch your eye? The one demon who draws you cards when he comes into play is pretty cool looking. He's um, oh, what is his name? Let me find him in the spoiler here. Demon Lord uh, Belzenlock. Which, and I believe I would have to go ask somebody who pays more attention to this stuff than I do. But I think this is the third demon that Liliana made her deal with. It was Gristlebrand, uh, Razakath, and Belzenlock. And (laughs) that is a lot of work to get that sentence out. Um, It's a... They have a really crappy AI that just churns out these like legendary names. uh, Take a little bit of Russian, a little bit of Polish, and then make it harder. Um, Six mana, six, six, flying trample. So that's good. And when he comes into play, you just start exiling cards from your library until you hit non-lands. And you put it in your hand. Uh, so he draws a card instantly, uh, essentially, when it comes to the play. And then if its mana cost is four greater, you lose a life and keep going. So if, you know, in an EDH deck, that could be three quarters of your deck. Um, so you could potentially put him in the play and draw like five or six cards and lose five or six life, which is so six minus six, six flying trample, redraw your hand. Uh, pretty powerful guy there. Um, you know, I think he's probably going to be similar to Razakath and that there might be, you know, it might take a little bit of time for there to be a adoption, but I do really like him in the long term. 
Yeah. There's uh, Muldratha, the Gravetide, three, Sultai, six, six. During each of your turns, you may play up to one permanent card of each permanent type from your graveyard. Uh, that thing is pretty nasty. That's got to be a pretty major commander, right? Um, it's, you know, I think there are cards that are of a similar nature out there already. Uh, but he's also in really good colors and there's not a lot of restrictions there. So that is, that is intense. I will say that. It's so open-ended. That's why I think this is a big deal because if you have a knight flavored commander, then the year where you're getting a bunch of knights, it sees a bump. After that, eh, ditto dinosaurs and whatever. But this guy, He's an elemental avatar, neither none, neither which is why you're playing him. He's just busto with whatever the best cards to be in your graveyard, to pull out of your graveyard, to cast multiple times over and over again are in the history of magic for from here to eternity. It's at the very definition of an open-ended commander. Yeah, right? I actually... There's going to be so many ways yeah, to build this. this guy I actually think is sort of miserable as a card, like... Like, okay, so you're just going to cast your Avengers Zendikar Hornet Queen like every single turn. I mean, that's just... Some people hear that and they get excited. To me, that sounds extraordinarily obnoxious and I would not want to play Magic with those people. But whatever. I mean, what I want doesn't matter. People are still going to do it and enjoy it. Well, the assumption here is you're doing things that do are relatively cheap and do busted things when they come into play and that you're recursing because you have an easy sacrifice outlet for permanence like Claws of Gix or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're doing what? Like, doesn't Oath of Liliana force everybody to sack a creature for one and a black? Uh, uh, it's, I thought it was three. The Liliana, three mana, everyone sacks. And then uh, if you have a pl- if you put a Planeswalker in the play, you get a 2-2 zombie. Yeah, so just every, every opponent sacks a creature every turn for three mana is crazy pants. Uh, yes, that would be extremely obnoxious. And that's like tip of the <laughs> for iceberg. Sure. Tip of the iceberg. Yeah, so tip, yeah. A couple of cards that I flagged for my Atraxa Planeswalker's deck. Oath of Teferi, three white, blue, legendary enchantment. When it enters the battlefield, exile another target permanent you control, return to the battlefield under its owner's control at the beginning of the next end step. So you can like have Ugin in play, clear the board of a bunch of stuff, and then phase Ugin out, bring him back in. He goes back up to full loyalty and you can activate the loyalty abilities of planeswalkers you control twice each turn rather than only once. So then, <laughs> then you would fire off Ugin's lightning bolt ability twice. Yeah. Yeah. That one, that one I did, did definitely caught my eye. It's like, Oh, that's going to be popular. There's several cards in here. that are going to be good in EDH. Um, of course, like I'm never wild about going, Hey, this brand new card uh, is just going to be good. in EDH. Like, uh what's his name uh the artifact from recently that you double you draw extra cards and you gain extra life whenever you would do either uh it was jace's mentor alahamrit's uh, archive or? yeah that one that one but when that came out it's like yeah this is gonna be good in edh but like i don't know what good that does like you can buy it now and hang out and wait for it to go up but like i'm more interested in like what does this do for other cards type of thing? I think those are more financially interesting for us than just this new card is good. And I haven't quite figured out what the rest of these cards do for everything else in EDH. Nothing like jumped out at me as a huge deal, uh, but I'm sure someone will like, you just got to keep your eyes open to figure out where those advantages are. 
Nauru Meha, Master Wizard 2, 2 blue. This is EDH and maybe modern. Flash Mm -hmm. 3, 3. When it enters the battlefield, you fork. Copy an instant or sorcery you control. Choose new targets if you want to. And other wizards you control get plus one, plus one. So auto slots into the wizards decks from last fall, Commander 2017. And in modern, if you have Dark Confidants and Snapcaster Mages in your deck, isn't this maybe enough? Um... Did you say wait in, in modern? Yeah, because like you, it makes your dark confidence three twos and your snapcasters three twos comes in with flash, allowing you du- to double up on a fatal push or a lightning bolt. If you've got uh, five mana, maybe. I guess my concern would be well, first of all, you're playing a four mana card in a deck with dark confidant, which is already getting a little spicy. Sure. Yeah, it's like is it is it Jace? Right? Is it Bloodbraid yeah. Elf? Uh, yeah, so. it's the same casting cost as Jace, so that's yeah. <laughs> obviously a factor in Grix's control shells. I, I also don't love it in mo- in EDH because you're going to get the effect once, and then it's like, okay, now what? Do I, yeah, I but Wizard, it, Wizards has a bunch of ways to like put Wizards up and down over well, and over again. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 okay, but like I was looking at something like uh, Joda is pretty interesting, which is no, you can- no, 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 no. I go ahead, but. The opposite. The problem with Joda for EDH, this is a 4-3 flyer, one white, blue, red. You can pay five rather than pay the mana cost for spells that you cast. Doesn't that not work in EDH? Because he's not a uh, five mana commander, so you can't have five mana spells? You, you can't have multicolored spells? You can't have multicolored spells. You cannot have the spells of all five colors in your deck. However, with the introduction of the colorless mana symbol uh and like colorless mana being denoted is separate um they okay. changed it so that you can generate land mana of any color in your decks um be, so that you couldn't for instance play a um card that generated oh, different I colors see. and then have it produce colorless instead and use that as a way right. to cast colorless spells your your, so, your your chromatic lantern incidentally makes your lands tap for the five colors you need and you're casting emercool which is colorless yeah so now you can't you can still only play jeskai cards but you can pay five for them rather than their mana cost so like yeah, you it. can cast you know Ulamog for five mana type of thing. So like yeah, he's kind of open ended. Does some cool stuff. Is appealing. There's some redundancy available with like Fist of the Suns too, which helps. Um, Garna the Blood Flame I think was the one that was kind of cool. Uh, when he enters the battlefield, return all creature cards in your graveyard that were put there from anywhere. So if you flip like twenty cards into your library into your graveyard from your library and then you play him and then you just pick all those creatures back up because it doesn't save from play. And then he has creatures you control of haste, which is really good. You've got uh let's see, Fire Song and Sunspeaker, which is a red and white legendary commander that isn't just you know battalion on a commander. He gives all your instants and sorceries lifelink, which is cool because it's a different way to build red and white than we've seen before. Um you got Tiana Ship's Caretaker two which is more equipment stuff so there's some interesting options in here i also think that slime foot the stowaway could be kind of cool as well because any effect in edh says deals whenever blah 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 deal one damage to each opponent and you gain a life you can add that up real fast so like people could be building sapperling decks which we've never really seen in edh like those have not been a popular build before uh could open up a lot of cool stuff especially some older cards yeah. I mean, I think one of the things here is that there are so many options for EDH in this set, and we've only seen two thirds of the set, that there's going to be a scattered reception. You know what I'm saying? Like when they release the commander decks, 
you kind of choose dinosaurs, wizards, one of the other tribes, which one are you going to go with? And then you set out to build it up. But in this case, this is going to unleash 20 new decks into Commander, right? All at the same time. Yeah. This so is- that, mean, that means less of a, a spike for any particular card unless it applies to all of the above. Uh, correct. And it, w- w- what I guess will happen is you'll see a much more muted response in cards spiking. Or should I say, well, people are still going to take shots, I guess. But what I would imagine will happen is over uh, several weeks after release, maybe a month or so, two months, you'll see certain cards are more popular than others. Like no one's picking up on, uh, you know, Rona, Disciple of Gex, but they are picking up on Joda. And then you're going to see those uh, increase in price. The cards for that increase in price more as people figure out which ones are popular and which ones aren't. So there might be a delayed reaction, which is great for us because then you can kind of like try and figure out, like you don't have to get it right instantly. Uh, you can kind of hold back and see if you can figure out what it is that people are going after. <laughs> I think it's cute that we got Squee the Immortal. Yeah. One double red. You may cast Squee the Immortal from your graveyard or from exile to one legendary goblin. If you don't know the history of magic, Squee's original incarnation is a 1-1 one, one for two and a red that you can bring back to your hand every turn. So it's like a, a good card to use with madness engines. Oh, you know what there? That work. That's another uh, eternal score, right? Casting from exile. Yep. Oh, now your serum visions deck, or not serum vision, serum powder deck, getting pretty interesting. So one of the other big reveals here is that we're getting the Innistrad checklands, uh, sulfur falls, and its ilk in this set. So they're going to be in standard. And one of the big plays on Magic Online Finance uh, when this was revealed was buying up all these super cheap copies of that. Um, and apparently some of the vendors were shutting that process down because <laughs> people tuned into it a little still, too quickly. It still annoys me that people uh, see these getting reprinted and they rush out to buy the old ones because they're all going to get reprinted at rare and they're going to be dirt cheap. Whatever. Well, yeah, yeah. But th- that, that's true in paper. But online, it's it's what happens is that during the that these dual lands tend to be worth a lot more. Um, because they're in such demand for standard and especially early on when, when people haven't like cracked enough of them through draft and whatever, they tend to sell for way more. So like the first printing of the card might've been down to like pennies. I don't know what it was. Could have been 34 cents, 74 cents, whatever. They'll probably get to two, three, four dollars. So it's like easy money. Yeah, on I mean, I just, online. if you get it in, happens, it just annoys me that it happens. <laughs> so one of the weird things I think they did here was this term historic, yeah. right? Um, so I'll give you an example, give you an example, Teshar, Ancestor's Apostle, three and a white, two, two flyer, bird cleric. Whenever you cast a, not even in quotes or italicized, historic spell, return target creature card with converted mana cost three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. And then in brackets, artifacts, legendaries, and sagas are historic. So not that there's an artifact subtype historic. Just from now on, all artifacts, legendaries, and sagas are grouped into this thing called historic. Yeah, I was talking about to my friends about that last night. There must be some sort of, um, they're going to have to add that to the rules, just be like a blanket statement. Like, hey, there's a thing called historic. That's what these are. Like, these are just always historic. It's kind of a, it's an interesting change to the rules because you don't see that type of thing very often. It's super weird because you have things like, uh, like from Innistrad block, you have like uh, Pitchfork equipment or whatever that's a common equipment that's historic uh it's uh you know the battle of uh of innistrad it was a big deal you know it's a piece of history 
I feel like they had a subtype historic on artifacts and then realized the cards were going to be too, um, wordy. No, no, like too. um, what do you call it when the cards are only good inside their own block? Uh, parasitic. Sure. These, I think there's a word that Mary uses that's different, but anyway, my, my point is that at some point in the, in the design process, that's probably how it worked. And they realized that the cards that were going to key off of it were going to be essentially pointless <laughs> once the block rotated. Yeah. So they expanded it to include all artifacts, all legends, and apparently the, the saga specifically. It's weird that they stopped. It's not all enchantments. It's just the the saga, the in- saga enchantments, but it is all artifacts. I mean, that's just awkward. Yeah. Um, all right. So a couple quick things. We're, we're running long here. I really want to touch on like one or two things. Uh, Icy Manipulator and Land War Elves both return. Uh, I already went and looked at the FNM copies of Land War Elves. They're basically gone, like 50 bucks a piece. But if you can find those for cheaper, those might be good pickups because suddenly people want to play Land War Elves again. And that is a cool classic one. Um, same deal with Icy Manipulator. Also, Damping Sphere. Pretty cool card for modern sideboards. Curious to see where that's going to go. That's the one that if a land is tap, if a land taps for more than two mana, it uh, or two or more, you just get one colorless instead, and it adds a tax. It's basically a storm tax, like Thalia Storm uh, is on it as well. So not only does it super ho- it hoses Tron and Storm, um, probably going to annoy the hell out of some commander players as well. So definitely some versatility there. Yeah. So looping back for a second to that Grixis wizard shell in modern, keep in mind they're getting two extremely powerful <laughs> tools here. Wizard's Lightning, which is a lightning bolt that costs three, but if you have a wizard, it, it's the same as lightning bolt. And Wizard's Retort, which is a counter spell if you have a wizard. Mm-hmm. So it's a little tricky because like you said, uh, Dark Confidant doesn't want to be flipping over three and four mana spells, but Lightning Bolt and Counterspell in Modern, if you had a if you had, say, 16 wizard wizards in your deck and then a bunch of instants and sorceries, like Lightning Bolt, Fatal Push, Wizards Lightning, Wizards Retort plus 16 Wizards isn't enough to at least test. <laughs> uh it's interesting. I guess Lightning Bolt is really good. Like Lightning Bolt and Counterspell are very, very good. I wonder if they're as good if you have to do work for them. You know what I mean? Like, how good are they? I don't know. It's not a lot of work though, right? Snapcaster Mage into like eight copies of Lightning Bolt. Yeah. And you can run Dire Fleet Daredevil. Yeah. It's not a wizard, but. I suppose that's true. Um, I the, the real problem is like the spells are so much worse when you don't have the wizard. <laughs> like the counter spell becomes cancel, which is fine. Um, cancels has been played before, but Lightning Bolt turning into, I don't even know what, Three, three yeah, there's another terrible, version yeah. of that. I don't remember what it is. That's real rough. But you know, if you can, ma- if you're making a point to try and put them in the play, I get, I would have to go back and look at the wizards because you get Snapcaster. But like, are there any one mana drops? Like, is uh the one the one prowess one two that's really popular? Like, is that a wizard? Like, I'd have to go back and check those to see what the what monastery yeah, spear no. yeah or stuff like that. Yeah, yeah that was what I was thinking of. But like stuff like that. How about? How about Grim Lava Monster, though? Uh, maybe. That's super burny, right? Like, that's very much a burn card. Um, but yeah, I mean, you could definitely build... You, someone's going to try and build Blue-Red Wizard Counterburn in Modern. And they'll put, you know, Sahili or I combo in there. <laughs> if, you're, if you're only Blue-Red and no Black, can you get Cheeky and run Muta, Muta Vault for your Wizards? So make sure yeah. these things are always turned on. 
You could. I mean, I don't see why not. I mean, of course, the problem with that is that you pay the one to turn the Mutavolt on just to get the one mana reduction on the counter spell. That doesn't really work. You save a mana on Lightning Bolt, but even that's a bit of a stretch. I don't know. This sounds like a good conversation to run by Todd Stevens when we do the set review and have him mm. ice, ice me on it. Yeah, he's going to be me harsh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's uh, let's wrap this up because it's going a long time here. Um, James, where can our listeners find you? You guys can find me at MTG Critic on Twitter, uh, as you, well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. Okay, and I am Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. Uh, I also write every Monday at MTGPrice.com with a Watchtower series, and uh, I show up occasionally on the webcast Cartel Aristocrats. Also, like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic. All right. Uh, and that brings us to the episode of 109. All sorts of chatter here for our listeners today, James. I thought it was a great episode. Uh, thanks for joining me, and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. And we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.